You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thanks, Max, and welcome back to the podcast, everybody. In our last episode, we talked about a number of pieces of legislation that are supported by the ACLU of Illinois in Springfield. They're working their way through the Illinois General Assembly. One of those bills is House Bill 3447, the Reducing Barriers to Recovery Act. Now, this is a bill that strengthens communities all across Illinois by addressing fundamental problems in our criminal justice system. The bill rejects decades of failed policies known as the war on drugs and substitute in its place a public health approach to dealing with drug use and drug disorders in Illinois. For 40 years, Illinois has relied on long, mandatory sentences for drug possession, sentences that have a devastating impact on people and on communities of color. 7,500 people were incarcerated in Illinois from 2016 to 2018 simply for possessing a small amount of drugs. That policy needs to change. Today, we're going to spend time with a panel of experts talking about how House Bill 3447 does just that, as well as their own personal experiences and perspectives on this measure. We are pleased to welcome four guests to help us discuss this topic. Liz Cruz is a senior advisor on health and well-being at the Women's Justice Institute. Alex Matheson is an associate director for programs at Live for Lali. Dr. Julie Konchak is an expert in public health with the Cook County Public Health Department, and Sheriff John D. Eidelberg is the sheriff of Lake County, Illinois. And I want to thank you all for joining us on Talking Liberties. (laughs) Well, thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here with this panelist to talk about this important subject that we all here would like to share our thoughts and feelings about. And thank you, Ed, for letting me be part of this uh, forum, this conversation. Well, Sheriff, thank you very much. So I want to start, when you think of the war on drugs, when you think of that concept, what does that mean to you? What does it say to you? How do you feel when you hear that term used these days? Dr. Konchak, you look like you want to jump in. Thanks, Ed. The war on drugs makes me think of a failed approach to a public health crisis. And I think about my patients and the harms of a punitive approach to a health condition. It just doesn't work and we can do better. And to follow up what the doctor said, Ed, that is very true. We have seen through history, war on drugs, what it have done to our community. It's a health issue. And we need to have more facilities to help people with this substance abuse. You know, I'm the sheriff of Lake County. I'm the third largest sheriff department in the state of Illinois. And I have a lot of people who are in and out of my jail because of substance abuse. And the jail is not the place for people to detox or deal with substance abuse. And that's one of the things which I'm very proud of working with the county board, the state's attorney, the coroner to get what we call a, a substance abuse center, a wellness center to help people with these things. Because sometimes people are not very honest when they come into the jail and talk about if they have substance abuse. And we try to uh, have conversations and we don't always get the right answers. So next thing you know, my officers are making the round. They see someone on the floor. And they are going through withdrawals. 
And then we yeah. have to use Meloxin and other things. And we need to understand that we use the term war on drugs. We need to understand that drugs have been a war on our society and we need to get them the help and the treatment they need. Liz? I just thought about like, when you think about war, you think about casualties of war, right? Because I was one of those folks that was on the jail cell detoxing without any help or support or medical attention. I just had to get through it, they told me, right? And so, but, so where is the real help when you think about putting someone in jail for substance use, right? What treatment do they really get? You just kind of put them on pause to resume when they're released. Right, they just continue the same thing because the real issue is not the drugs, it's the trauma, it's the untreated mental health, it's it's whatever else comes with each person. And it's not a one size fits all, right? You put all these people in a jail and you're thinking that you're treating addiction, but that system doesn't treat anyone, right? And when I was incarcerated, I needed more treatment from being in treatment because I did treatment in prison and it didn't really help me at all. My mental health was worse and it diminished over time in prison. And when I got out, I had to be placed on medication because my Uh mental health was so severe. So when you think about it, like, is it really helping or is it hindering the people that it's affecting? You could put someone in jail, but how is that helping the problem? I'd love to echo what Elizabeth was saying there. You know, the war on drugs is just as traumatic as the effect of drugs themselves on our communities. You know, the war on drugs is just a continuation of puritanical dogma that really serves no purpose in modern society. It's a continuation of the war on bodily autonomy, and it's incredibly racist at that, and we all deserve better. So Liz, I wanna, can I go back and pick up on on what you said and your own experience? How old were you when you went to prison for drug possession? Yeah, I was arrested between the ages of 17 and 22, and then I was actually incarcerated in, in Illinois Department of Corrections at 22. So. At that point, my brain is still developing, but I was on drugs, heroin, cocaine, and anything else under the sun prior to. I started using at the age of 11. I was severely impacted from that age to incarceration. So I started using at that age. And, you know, I asked the judge for treatment, and the judge told me I can get treatment in IDOC. (laughs) She wasn't going to let me out to go get high anymore is what she said. I wonder about that. You said you'd been arrested between the ages of 17 and 22. Were you ever offered treatment during any of those times? Never. I, I mean, you know, you go through this slight intake process, but there's never no real help afforded to you. And they just tell you, if you guys want to go to an AA meeting to get out your cell, you can go. I was just going to those because I want to get out my cell. I didn't know what AA was or that there was help or opportunities out there for me. I didn't even know. I'm going to tell you guys, I didn't even know what treatment was or being that young. You're just doing what you've always done. I had no idea what Department of Corrections was. I had no idea that I was going to go to a place where I didn't get out because I just kept getting out. So I thought I would just keep getting out, right? Like the system never explained, this is the process. This is pretrial. Like I never knew. So I was just waiting to kind of get out. So I heard I can get out faster if I ask for treatment. So I did. And she said, and her words were literally, you can get treatment in DOC because you're going down. And I got five years the first time. And during that time, did you ever really get any meaningful treatment? No, it wasn't. It was so hard to even think about treatment when you're in a prison setting and they're yelling and screaming and fighting and officers are treating you like you're inhumane. I, you know, and you have to eat within five minutes of you getting your food. And, you know, it was so nerve wracking. And I had unresolved trauma. I had anxiety, severe depression. While I was in treatment, it was so hard to think about recovering, right? Or being better or being in recovery. Because I'm in a situation where it's traumatic every day. 
So now yeah. you have trauma on top of trauma, right? Trauma. Yeah, yes. on top of trauma. And then when you get out, that's traumatic as well because now I'm placed back in society where things are moving so fast for me that I had to be placed on medication just to make a decision. Mm. I couldn't, I, and I couldn't, I was 24 when I got out and I just couldn't function. I was felt so stuck. I, I stayed in recovery. I went to meetings and I've stayed sober ever since, but those impacts of being incarcerated are still with me to this day. I still have PTSD. When police are behind me, I get nervous. I'm worried about my kids. Like I worry about being pulled over and going to jail. I won't do the speed limit if they're behind me because I'm nervous of going over or going under. It's like this whole mental facade that I go through when I'm driving, especially with my kids in the car. Like I still mm -hmm. had to this day and I've been out since 2004. Wow. Alex, how does what Liz is saying, how does that track with your experience? I couldn't have put it better myself. I have that exact same experience that you were just describing, Liz. I still get anxious around police officers. I still go exactly the speed limit. I still look over my shoulders. I spend a good deal of time uh, on the run. Mm -hmm. And that has given me a lasting anxiety disorder that I struggle with still to this day. I mean, everything you said is truth. And we are just a small fractional representation of how many people are actively experiencing this. And it makes recovery much more complicated too, when you think about it, because all of these things are culminating and creating this massive force that you have to then deal with. It's terrible. Yeah. Can I say, I was even nervous to sure, come Liz. here and even talk about it, like in really? a, more of a public forum. I'm used to, I still do AA and I, I and NA and I still go to meetings, but yeah, just in the back of my mind, it's like when you even talk about law enforcement, sometimes I still get anxious or I hear the word offender or inmate. It still makes me anxious after all this time. Yeah. I, I did a, a naloxone training for a police department in suburban Cook County a couple of months ago. And even when I went into their training room, I made sure to look around to see where the open doors were so that I know that I could walk out of there. Wow, that's quite an impact. Alex, were you able to get treatment in the course of your involvement with the criminal justice system? So I was initially given the opportunity to receive treatment, but like many, I wasn't ready for that. And so I did not succeed with treatment. When it came time for me to recover, as I said, I was on the run as a fugitive, so I could not access any kind of traditional treatment. I did do that on my own through the kindness of, of people I'd meet on the street. When I came back into reality, yeah, I did go through IOP. I did, you know, I have a healthy relationship with a therapist. I do peer support meetings and those are all very beneficial, but early recovery was very different. So I was on the run for the first two years of my recovery. So Liz and Alex, I wonder if I could ask you both to just, just sort of share, because I think that one thing that people may have a misunderstanding about is the notion of treatment being sort of a one-time fix or just a we offer some sort of treatment and then everybody's okay. Is that how it works in the real world? Absolutely not. You're both shaking your head no. So I'm gonna I, I guess I've touched a nerve here. Yeah. You know, it's funny that I feel like people think that a person goes to treatment, they, her life, their life should just be changed in like an instant. Right. And they didn't get there in an instant. Right. I didn't get incarcerated in an instant. Does it happen? It happens over time. And I think people need to understand that change happens over time. It doesn't happen right away. It's really baby steps. For me, I'm going to tell you, I went to treatment in IDOC. I came out and and I think for me, the issue is, is people say, well, you were in there. You didn't go back. I've been sober almost 19 years, but I'm going to tell you the treatment that I got in prison was not clinical, sound, evidence-based treatment. 
Because you cannot expect someone to recover in that environment from anything. And recovery is not a, a one-time shot. It's a journey is what they say, right? Not a destination. So Dr. Konchak, I, I'm sorry, you're, you're nodding and following along here. So I have to ask you, you know, what is your experience in people recovery? I, I take it it isn't just a one-time opportunity. Do we have to think more broadly than that as we approach these issues? Yeah, thanks, Ed. And Liz and Alex, for sharing your story and your perspectives. A lot of what you said, I it was nodding profusely, uh, thinking about all my patients. I think it should be known that when it comes to treatment, we, we know we have good science behind what works. And it's often patient-centered, meaningful psychosocial support, plus for substance use conditions where we have it, such as alcohol and opioid use disorder, access to medications that work, and recovery support. And very few, or definitely not the majority of jails, in Illinois and very few of the prisons offer for at least for opiate use disorder and alcohol use disorder that gold standard. So if we think about other chronic conditions, you know, it would it would seem just bizarre for us to be talking about diabetes or depression or hypertension and throwing second tier or third tier medications that the state pays for and mandates. But that's basically what happens here. And so it, it's not effective and it's harmful. You know, there's the risk of overdose when you leave an institution is significantly high. And the trauma, and Liz, I, I loved that you pointed out that change happens over time. And I think that's a big part of what we missed with the current approach, right? You you go to jail, you, you get maybe some sort of meetings or something like that, and then you leave and you're expected to never make a mistake again, right? And we're, humans are good at progress, but not good at perfection, right? A, a wise right. man um, once told me that from Chicago Recovery Alliance. And we don't, we, you know, our patients on, my patients on probation, you know, do, it's, sometimes it's a roller coaster, not for everybody, but sometimes it's not straightforward. And our criminal justice system punishes you and, and pulls you back. And that interferes with your life, your loved one, your communities, your employment, your housing, everything that builds up and supports recovery is challenged. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that. I want to bring Sheriff Eidelberg back into this conversation now. And Sheriff, I'm going to guess, just looking at you, you know, you're obviously far younger than I am, but I'm going to guess for just a moment that you've been a police officer for more than a couple of years. Yes, sir. Matter of fact, I started my career back here with the Lake County Sheriff Department back in 1977 as a deputy in the jail. And it's nice to be full circle from a deputy sheriff, local police officer, federal agent, and now to be sheriff of this place that I started at. That's really a great story. Yeah. You know, and I listened to what Liz and Alex and the doctor had to say, and all what they're saying is true. You know, I have people from all walks of life coming to my jail with substance abuse, and they have to acknowledge that they have a problem. And that's the problem what we have right now, people acknowledging that I need help. And then because they're in a controlled environment, we try to do everything we can to give them counseling. But they, like anything else, they have to want to go to the counseling and talk to us. And then we do everything we can. We give them treatment. We give them Vivitol and some stuff like that to help them with their withdrawals. And then, like you say, they may be with us for six months to a year. They are now detoxed. They're clean. But we also do our best to try to give them a handoff with some information to some facility, some outreach program that they can go to to get help. Because if they don't, like Alex and uh, Liz said, they will relapse. They will go back out there and probably have an overdose die because they're, the drugs have changed from the time they've been in the system, they've been clean. And I care about them. I think we all do. That's why we're here today. 
So again, it's about education and making sure there's resources and funding for these programs that can help these individuals be more productive people in society as they transition out of either jail or within from the Department of Correction. Sheriff, I want to pick up on a couple things here. And I want to go back, given your career, I want to go back before we get to these questions of treatment, et cetera. Do we expend too many resources enforcing these drug laws in Illinois or do you currently in Lake County? I would say that we need to spend more time understanding that human beings, we make mistakes. And sometimes we make mistakes through either drugs or alcohol, it's some type of substance abuse. And we have to have empathy and compassion for our fellow human beings. And we need to put resources out there to help these individuals. I started as a police officer back in 77, how we dealt with drugs and how we dealt with people. We can't keep that same philosophy as we move forward. We need to change. And I'm saying that there's better opportunity for us to help people and we should put the resources in there to make everybody safe and make them healthy again. Sheriff, I don't know if it would surprise everyone, but there may be some people who are surprised to hear a sheriff of a large county in Illinois, like yourself, supporting this particular measure. Why do you think it's important as a law enforcement official to speak out in this way about this particular bill? We've all maybe had contact with loved ones or family or friends. We've seen what drugs have done to our community. It is shameful. And we have in society looked the other way and just say, well, they should do better. But we also need to understand we all need a helping hand. And I think that low-level drug offenders that we are seeing now that get arrested, they get into this vicious cycle of drugs. And then another thing would happen, they get a felony conviction. That changes their life. And even though if they do get clean, their whole lives have changed now. So I don't believe that law enforcement and the legislators should be putting people for low-level crime in the system and putting these burdens to them. We need to spend more money and resources of these different facilities that can help these individuals to be more productive in society and not brand them with these felonies convictions. So, Liz, I want to pick up on a point the sheriff made. You have a felony record. Mm -hmm. Does that continue to impact you even after all these years? It does. I have three felonies, actually. And it does. And, and it did. And until I came to a point in my life where I wasn't going to allow it to impact uh, my choices and decisions, today it doesn't impact it as far as I can tell. But prior to, because right now I teach college, I work for the Women's Justice Institute, you know, I work with women coming out of prison and one of the things I hear you guys talking about is like the wraparound services. There is no wraparound for the people coming from prison and a certain engagement in prison and then wrapping around them out of prison. And they're, one of the issues that the women have and that I had is like they're fearful to apply for jobs, to obtain employment. They think they're not going to get employment, no housing. There's restrictions for Section 8 barely can get low income housing. So where do these folks go when they get out? What jobs do they apply for? Where are they going to live besides a shelter? And it's interesting that when I got out, I was out probably like seven years and lost my job at an organization because of my background. After four years of working there, they walked me out because of my felony history, because I applied for a better job with them. And they ran my background more thoroughly and they walked me out. You know, and then there was rumors about me 
committing a crime was why I got walked out. And it impacted me years later. And just to be clear, none of that happens if, as under this bill, right. it's a misdemeanor offense as opposed to a felony offense right. for yes. simple drug possession. Right. right. That's amazing. So, Dr. Konchak, I, I want to bring you into this conversation. We're talking a lot about different kinds of treatment. We're talking a lot about different kinds of approaches. But I wonder if, just again, philosophically, why does this approach make sense to you? Why does it make sense to go ahead and treat this as something we can deal with as a public health matter rather than a criminal matter? It's funny. We don't. We wouldn't ask that about any other chronic condition, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't think that the right thing is to punish instead of offer support and care and, and evidence-based treatment. But substance use is you know, so stigmatized and addressed so differently and ineffectively. But substance use disorder is is treatable. It has to be patient-centered. It has to promote, not prohibit or limit recovery supports, right? And like Liz, you gave a great example of how your employment opportunity was just pulled from you, right? And Everybody, like if you think of our basic needs, we all need to be able to provide for ourselves. And why would we think, of course, that would interfere with recovery or could interfere with recovery if housing, employment, all these things that we know that when you have a criminal record attached to your substance use disorder, life is harder to to reach health in those in those domains. This punitive, expect perfection, punish anything less, and not just punish in the moment, but it has lifelong repercussions is is harmful for um, livelihood and wellness, but but also, you know, we we should remember that in 2020, you know, we saw almost as many deaths in Illinois from overdoses as we did from COVID. I mean, it is a public health crisis right now, of epic proportion, and we should respond appropriately and do all we can to create opportunity for health. You know, one thing I wonder about: what do we know from research about the setting for treatment? Do we know anything about whether or not it, it's better? for it to be done or different to be done, say out of a facility like a prison or an inpatient center as opposed to in in some other fashion? In other words, I guess what I'm really asking, what works the best or is that just all an individual matter? One thing that we know doesn't appear to be very effective is mandated care, mandated treatment. That's not to say that there's not stories of I was put in jail and I received treatment and that saved my life. Of course, we hear times like that. that and that's that's great that that person got what they needed. But you don't hear about the person who was incarcerated, you know, received whatever was mandated or that they had to participate and then is released without the supports that they needed in their life and they were going to be meaningful to them and returns to use or overdoses or has a horrible outcome. And, and that's unfortunately much more common. In the outpatient centers, outpatient setting, especially for patients who are not um, attached to criminal justice, we give our clinical recommendations. We give a variety of options. And for some people, that's faith-based support. For some patients, that's peer support. For some, that's residential. You know, we recommend based on our addiction backgrounds. And then the patient, patient, the recovery is in the patient's hands. And that's when the outcomes are best. And and like um, I think Liz said, or it was said by I think everybody, it's not a one-time, like, you know, great, you did it, check the box, you're done, right? It's um, it's a recurring and available and tweaking over time and adjusting. And that's really hard to do. Our, like, government in general is not very good at being nimble, let alone, I think, the justice system for tweaking and personalizing and adjusting. So we put people in this box, they have substance use disorder, this is what they're going to do, and then they're going to be perfect yeah. when they leave. Yeah. And it's just not reality. Alex, when you hear this, what are some of the like programmatic things that you think people need 
both in terms of treatment, but then I think as Liz described earlier, some of the wraparound services, both from your, your work and your perspective, like what are, what are some of the things we, we need to put in place for those things as well? I think having a generalized understanding that there are multiple pathways to recovery is incredibly crucial. I also think it's really important to acknowledge the stigma within the recovery community towards multiple pathways to recovery. So a lot of us found the one path that works for us. And that is such a profound experience. You know, to be able to break an addictive cycle is, is incredibly profound. Oftentimes, individuals claim it as deific, you know, divine intervention. So when you have a powerful experience like that, I am not horribly surprised to find that individuals believe that that is the one way. This is the savior route. And then we then, unfortunately, oftentimes condemn other individuals for taking different paths, like moderation, like doing smart recovery and refuge recovery instead of traditional 12-step recovery. I think it is incredibly important for all of us to acknowledge that there are multiple pathways. Because not, not one shoe fits on every foot. Yeah. And and to kind of piggyback to and what the good doctor was saying, yeah, it can take multiple times to to enter into what's, you know, defined as remission. We don't we don't send one person through cancer treatment and then another person through the same cancer treatment and expect identical results either. This is a chronically relapsing and remission-based disease. Well, listen, I really want to thank you all, Liz and Alex, especially to come forward in a place like this, Liz, you even said it, and and talk about your own experiences is really powerful. Dr. Konchak, we really are grateful for your experience and your expertise here. And Sheriff Eidelberg, we don't get a lot of law enforcement folks on our podcast for some strange reason. And so I am I am really happy that you you all joined us to talk about this really important bill. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. My pleasure. Thanks, Can I Sheriff, I want to tell you that thank you for being here from my experience from being incarcerated and to be here with you today. Like you changed the narrative for me when I see law enforcement step up and, and they're present and supportive and loving where that's not the narrative out here in the world today. And so thank you for being here for changing that narrative for me because I was on parole. I was incarcerated. I was arrested. So all my experiences were not really great with law enforcement. So you make it wonderful. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for those very kind words, Liz. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. We're joined now by my colleague, Ben Riddell, the Criminal Justice Policy Director in the Advocacy Department at the ACLU of Illinois. Hey, Ben, welcome to Talking Liberties. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. So we've heard these statements. We've heard these experiences. I wonder if we could just talk for just a second about House Bill 3447. And the first thing is, what does it technically do? I, I really do want to make sure that we have that up front. The core of the bill is a, a reclassification of the penalty for possessing a small quantity of a prohibited drug in Illinois from its current felony classification to a class A misdemeanor. So under current law, a person who's convicted of possessing a small quantity of drugs who's convicted of a felony is eligible to go to prison to the Illinois Department of Corrections for one to three years or more, depending on the quantity, and will have a felony record for the rest of their life that will be a barrier potentially every time they apply for employment. Uh, housing, education, et cetera. So the new law or the, the proposed bill would 
reclassify that penalty from a felony to a misdemeanor, which is still a crime and still could carry a sentence of incarceration in a local jail, but is a, uh, a lesser penalty and does not is not eligible for the Department of Corrections and does not carry as severe collateral consequences as a felony conviction when it comes to uh, what happens once the person's completed their sentence and trying to live their life. And does the bill do anything for people who've already been convicted under this? Is there any retroactivity to it? Yes, the bill attempts to address that problem in a couple of ways. For one, it would allow a person who has a conviction for a felony that would be a misdemeanor under the this new law, an opportunity to go back to court to have the record essentially uh, corrected or updated to show that that past conviction is a, a misdemeanor in line with the current law. And so that person can truthfully tell prospective employers or landlords or, or other people who might be inquiring into their criminal history that like, I don't have a felony record because the court has said so. And then secondly, a person who's been convicted either of a misdemeanor possession charge under the new law or felony under the old law that would be a misdemeanor under the new law, after a five year waiting period could petition to court to expunge that conviction, to do away with it entirely and, and uh, uh, obliterate it from the record. So this is a really remarkable shift in terms of the way we have approached these things in Illinois. And I think of it as being, I think of it as being somewhat courageous. So I just wonder in terms of the bill, who is sponsoring this bill in both chambers? So the um, the bill was sponsored in the House of Representatives or is sponsored in the House of Representatives by Representative Carol Ammons from the Champaign-Urbana area. And in the Senate, Senator Melinda Bush, who is from the Lake County area uh, where Sheriff Eidelberg lives and, and works, are our two sponsors. And this is something that you've titled Reducing Barriers to Recovery. Is that right? So when people are hearing about this or seeing it, that's that's sort of what they want to be looking for. That's right. And we call it that because uh, one of the elements of the bill that we haven't talked about is a framework for diverting people who come into contact with the system because they've been arrested for these charges, an opportunity to get completely out of the, the criminal legal system and uh, have their uh, needs assessed and you know potentially treated in the community rather than under the auspices of the criminal justice system. So last two questions, I think that some people would think, oh, this might be a heavy lift or this is difficult, et cetera. It turns out that this is actually a pretty popular proposition. Yes, it's a popular proposition with 79% of Illinois voters supporting not just reclassifying penalty for small-scale possession, but in fact, supporting reductions for all drug offenses. And we know that that support is strong no matter what region of the state you're looking at. We know it's strong among Republicans as well as Democrats, that different uh, racial and ethnic groups feel strongly about this as well. So it's really elected officials who need to be persuaded far more than the public. Um, the public is there. Okay, so if I want to be part of the 79% and persuade those elected officials, what do I do? 
So the bill has already passed the House of Representatives. So your energy should be focused on contacting your state senator because the bill is currently pending in the Senate. And that's uh, the, the House has passed the bill. The Senate still needs to pass the bill. So the most important thing people can do is contact their senators and urge them to vote yes and sign on as a co-sponsor of, of House Bill 3447 and to get the word out to other people, especially people who, who might live in different parts of the state where their senators might hear, hear less about this issue to reach out to, to your networks of, of people and let them know that this bill exists and that Illinois state senators really need to hear from their constituents in order to know that it's important enough to step out and take a vote on something that's been controversial and is not, you know, not everybody agrees with this. And so they need, they need to hear from you and, and to hear your support to know that this is, is really that important, that they need to take action. Well, I got to say, Ben, you know, I'm just the communications guy, but it doesn't feel to me that a bill that's got eight out of 10 voters is all that controversial. No, and one other thing, Ed, it's in addition to not being controversial, it's not radical. Uh, 20 other states have misdemeanor penalties on the books now for small scale drug possession. And many of these states have had those penalties on the books for decades now. And they show those states are they're not in one part of the country. They're all over the country. When you look at those states, there's no higher rate of drug use, no higher rate of overdose. The sky has not fallen. In fact, they, you know, I think have are showing better results because they're not saddling their citizens with felony records for for health issues. So uh, Illinois needs to be state number 21. And thanks so much for jumping on to talk about this. And let's try to have you back and talk about it once the bill is signed into law by the governor. I'd love that. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for joining us today on Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I really want to thank our guests, Liz Cruz, Alex Matheson, Dr. Julie Kunchak, and Sheriff John Eidelberg of Lake County, along with our colleague, Ben Riddell, for joining us to talk about House Bill 3447, the Reducing Barriers to Recovery Act. If you want more information about this bill, you can find it on our website by going to www.aclu-il.org slash legislative dash action, or we make it really easy by just putting it all on the front page. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties. We really appreciate you following us and listening to our episodes. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Cozeal. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, all one word, at aclu-il.org. We'll be back soon with another edition of Talking Liberties. Thanks so much.